Hello and welcome to this podcast on the Edinburgh Food Dialogues. I'm Dr Christine Shields of the University of Edinburgh's Global Academy of Agriculture and Food Security. This recording was made in January this year. That is to say, it was made BC, or before COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic, and when we could still meet to discuss and share ideas in person. In January, shortly before he was appointed as the World Health Organisation Special Envoy on COVID-19, Dr David Nabarro visited us at Edinburgh University to lead one of his pioneering food systems dialogues. The Food Systems Dialogues are a global series of facilitated roundtable discussions that encourage collective action for transforming food systems. They are led by Dr Nabarro through the social enterprise 4SD. We'll hear more from him in a moment, but first we'll meet some of the people attending the Edinburgh Food Dialogue event. I'm the Sustainable Food Cities Coordinator for Edinburgh, so I'm part of the Edible Edinburgh Partnership, which is uh, the food partnership within the city. So I work for an organisation called the Soil Association. We're an organic food and farming charity. I'm with the Dignity and Practice team. I'm also doing public sociology at Queen Margaret University. That's why I'm here. I'm working with uh, an organisation called Nourish Now. And we've come here to learn really about how David has organised this and what we can take away from that. It sounds like it will be a really interesting event and I'm excited to hear the different perspectives in the room. In 2015, around the time that the Sustainable Development Agenda was agreed by heads of government and signed off on in New York the United Nations set up a small group of people who would ask the really tough question, if we are going to have sustainable futures, what does this mean for food systems? And even asking the question in that way was pretty extraordinary because it was the beginning of a shift in the dialogue about food to actually seeing it as an outcome of interconnected systems rather than simply a linear process of production through to consumption. That was necessary because of a growing understanding that food systems are immensely powerful in terms of ensuring health and nutrition and well-being and reducing hunger. But if they are not carefully managed, they can cause considerable damage to all sorts of different aspects of life that are important for the future. So this group that were brought together, they were called the Milano Group because it was set up in in Milan in October 2015, said quite simply, there are four basic purposes of a food system nowadays. The first is to enable all people to be well-nourished and healthy. The second is that they've got to be able to protect and regenerate ecosystems. That is obviously aquifers that contain water, or it's got to be forest land that is absolutely essential for uh, sequestering carbon dioxide. But if food systems are damaging ecosystems, then it's not a good thing. And then the third area is that it's important that food systems support resilient livelihoods for producers and processors. And you probably know that in the world at the moment, around two and a half billion people actually exist and have their living and livelihoods 
linked to food and food production and processing. So that's quite a large chunk of the world's population. And the fourth thing is that, unfortunately, food systems and agriculture contribute to between 25 and 33% of greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's quite important when thinking about food to imagine a future situation where food systems are not contributing to global warming, at least not to the extent they are. So this means that there are four areas in which food systems need to be evolving, and certainly this needs to be in the minds of policymakers who are thinking about the future of food. It can't be pick and choose. They all four matter. The nutrition part, the environment part, the livelihoods part, and the climate part all matter. And there are many choices and trade-offs that have to be made in managing to get towards these outcomes. And they have to be dealt with locally. It's no good doing food out of Rome or out of London or out of New York or out of uh, Santiago or wherever else we've got some big hub of, of uh, people who come together and think, because actually food is a local issue. You've got an issue, an area of focus assigned to your table, and it's there written in, in uh, big writing. And the question that you're asked to discuss is what would make the biggest impact in Scotland, and I want to be specific, this is Scotland, within three years. So it's things to be done within the next three years that will make the biggest impact to reach the steady state or desired state that's on the sheet of paper on your table. And there are five table issues. One refers to the situation where no child in Scotland, I want to stick with Scotland today, suffers from undernutrition, micronutrient deficiency or holiday hunger as a result of food insecurity. And Bill Gray of NHS Health Scotland has agreed to be the facilitator. That's table one on my left here. Where's table two? Just could you, yeah, there we are. Steph Smith is the facilitator. And this is about farmers and food producers in Scotland able to make a living from producing sustainable, nutritious and affordable food. Number three, Stephanie Manda of Nourish is going to focus on the role that supermarkets play in tackling overconsumption as well as undernutrition, as well as the incidence of non-communicable diseases such as obesity. Number four, Helen is there, has got a more of an Edinburgh focus. Edinburgh reduces her carbon footprint from food consumption as a city. And number five uh, is over there. Madeline is kindly uh, facilitating food sector workers in Edinburgh, Scotland and the UK have decent work and can afford an adequate standard of living. These table subjects have been developed in discussion with the Global Academy of Agriculture and Food Security. That's how we do it. It's always jointly done between us and them. The facilitators get it right. They'll check you in and they'll check you out at the end. They like disagreement. We don't try to paper over it. At this stage, I don't usually ask for questions because obviously you've got many questions, but the whole purpose here is to let go. It's not me, it's you. So I'm going to stop. Facilitators, please take over and I'll come back and talk to you again when we are near the end and I'll ask you how you're getting on. Thank you. Feel free to make a lot of noise. If it's too much, then you can all go somewhere else to sit if you need to. So what are the barriers? If, if the barriers are the barriers that all poor workers suffer. These dialogues are always a three-part process. In the second part, participants discuss one of these key issues in depth 
and explore barriers to change and possible interventions. We start from the recognition that if you have a different professional or sectoral perspective on food, that will colour the views you have about how to transform food systems so that they are good for people and planet. And put that out provocatively. It will help to re-establish the role of supermarkets as being more focused on the kind of the environmental side of the discussion as well. The key idea here is to bring stakeholders from diverse parts of the food system together around a table to share perspectives and to cooperate on finding ways to improve the food system. Does that feel like the right kind of sense of what people are, are getting from this? What we want to try to break through is the inevitable differences of opinion that take place between different individuals and groups. That always gets farmers <laughs> nervous. <laughs> We're used to more sausages rather than less sausages on our plate, but um, it raises an interesting question, how do you engineer that? And so it's to enable people to find between their differences they can find more common purpose. The average income of farmer in the UK, 70% of that is from the subsidies. We're at a critical time in, in addressing that because we're yeah. obviously now about to leave the EU. You can create safe spaces where people with very different points of view can experiment to find out whether they might be able to shift their thinking and their positions. Hearing the farmers talk about some of the challenges they face influences those who are involved in advocacy or hearing the health people make the point about the damage being done by non-nutritious food then helps the producers and the retailers to change. How does everyone feel about that? Is that right to focus just on that one for now? We should also look at how to create a uniform standard in the whole of the sector as well. And yet there are some authorities, like I think South Asia's one. The most famous globally is Copenhagen, where now I think 90% of their food is organic. They've managed to do it over the years without increasing cost by, as you said, very carefully balancing menus. Sometimes we get other influences. We've had um, dialogues where people who are living in food poverty explain just how extraordinarily difficult it is and encourage us not to use thinking of the affluent when we're contemplating system change. Coming from a, like a sort of poverty area, richer area, schools do enforce that better. If you're a kid living in poverty and you actually like going to the chip shop for chips, why should you exclude that child from doing that? So there's something about, I agree you need to change behaviour and that it's not healthy for them to do it every day, but I don't think banning things is the right yeah. Where to do it? The evidence in the past has been that a lot of young people, especially secondary school, it's the getting away from school that's the bigger pool rather than how good the, the carrier is that they go for. This kind of work often is hard to demonstrate in a true scientific way that's making a difference, but I've seen enough evidence of shift because it's taking off like a movement around the world. This model has application in any area where there's a complex issue which requires multiple actors with different perspectives to align work in synergy for shifting systems. Could be water, could be the future of employment, could be to do with peacekeeping. And in fact, I find that there are some people who use this approach in dealing with really tricky issues. It's just, it's the opposite 
of one individual or one research group or one discipline trying to get everybody else to come along with their way of thinking, their perspective, and acknowledging that there are multiple perspectives that are valid. And once you get that, you never turn back. I might take a wee minute to try and get that all down into my form because I think we'll have to report back. Um, but if anyone's got any final thoughts... In the third and final part of the dialogue, the groups come back together to share their thoughts and conclusions with the rest of the room. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's always hard when this work is happening to stop the conversation. So what I try to do is to just gently introduce the fact that we're shifting gear now. What I'll do is I'll go around the facilitators and I will ask them whether they're ready and we will start the, the report back. Now, Holly, you've got the floor. So um, we were tackling question one on our table. So a lot of our conversations just started with listening to the people involved and making sure that local voices are being heard and that any initiatives are really community driven. But as the conversation moved on a little bit more, we were thinking more as well, that's all very well, but as well as if there's not systems in place on a national level, um, social security systems, for example, then you know those two need, needs to work together. So we, top down and bottom up. Yes. <laughs> we will know we have succeeded when we have better informed practices and policies and that more people within the communities that are working with people are recognising poverty and the markers for that and that people are able to access initiatives and services and support. And also we talked a little bit about stigma attached to some of the terms, especially with regards to holiday hunger and other terms that those you know families living in those scenarios have you know, maybe Ben pointed out, maybe third generation living in that environment. So those words don't mean anything to them. They could be quite stigmatizing, which I thought was interesting. And how can we promote collaboration? Just going back to ensure that all the players in the game are kind of talking to each other. So it's children's parents, all services, um, schools, police, and empowering everyone to be able to, um, if say, for instance, it was a school, to be able to poverty proof those facilities and establishments to ensure, um, minimize it. Um, and how could our organisations support this? So we all work for quite different organisations, but we could all kind of agree that it's empowering people to campaign for what they want and what they need and ensure with ac academic facilities, it's about making sure that you're funding the right projects and the right things and targeting that in the right way. And I've just written education. <laughs> so, yes, that's very important too. <laughs> so I will hand over to Bill to just fill in anything else. One of the things I thought was um, remarkable, oh, but didn't frighten anybody at the Bill table. Bill Gray taking over from Holly Gabriel. But there was um, there was very little disagreement. I have to say, we had a, we had a looking around to make sure we did have an awful lot of consistency and consensus really? in the discussion. And I think the key thing was, as Holly said, is in taking a systems approach, we have to recognise that the community themselves whether that's children, their parents, their families or, or the, the, the workers they work with, whatever, are very much part of that system and have to be a valued and resourced part of that system. There's a major national recognition of the importance for whole system approaches. Yeah. But after a century of not working in that manner, it's not going to happen overnight. It's a big cultural shift for many of our national organisations. So please, thank you very much indeed, Bill. Thank you also to Holly. Thank you for the table. 
If we could just hold on to this challenge of what it does take to overcome a century of sort of stovepiped and siloed working and moving towards more of a systems approach. It applies not just in the reduction of undernutrition. Uh, I'd love to come back to that as we move towards the end. Now, Steph Smith from the Global Academy, one of our sponsors is going to report back. If you'd like to come and stand at the front so that everybody can see you, that would be great. And we're talking about question two. Um, so I would just firstly say there was, I've got huge respect for the knowledge and expertise at my table. Uh, so not sure I'm best qualified to represent this, but I'll give it a go. We recommend that the Scottish Government should agree a definition of sustainably produced food, which includes other services such as soil regeneration and other ecosystem services. This should then guide policy decisions on allocation of subsidies and public procurement. Ideally, this is a, publicly, a public sector leading the way, which would then normalise um, sustainably nutritious and affordable food. More young people in agriculture... Metrics like improved soil quality, pollinators, uh, health benefits of eating um, according to the guide. And we would try and promote collaboration by trying to improve our understanding. So at our table we had both producers and consumers. So with producers being informed as to how to sustainably produce food and consumers being informed as to what they're buying. We've also got to be inclusive. We were missing retailers at our table, um, and it would be interesting to see what role they would have in it. Was it a a kind of consensual discussion, or were they sharp edges? I think it was discussed very diplomatically. There were different opinions, Mm. but valid, because they came from the backgrounds people have come from, the jobs that they do. Mm. But please, somebody else. (laughs) Well, I'm going to shift one stage further. Are we going to get in Scotland the right signals at either end to move in the direction of farmers being able to make a living from sustainably produced food? Is this feasible? It's feasible, but I don't think the political will is there at the moment to really make the kind of changes, either in the interests of farmers or you know, in terms of nutritional quality for consumers. I think there is a reluctance in the Scottish Government to recognise that far-reaching change is needed. We have a huge opportunity ahead of us here in Scotland. Um, We have the Good Food Nation Bill, which has been promised by Scottish Government. And there's an opportunity to do some of that systems thinking, as you mentioned, um, take an integrated approach to policy making, environmental policy, agricultural policy and health policy. I think civil servants are really struggling with that agenda, but there is an opportunity with that bill to try and overcome that. So, Brilliant. Okay, so here we come to... Where's three? Thank you. Table three is Stephanie. So table three, we're tackling the question of supermarkets playing their part in tackling overconsumption, undernutrition and incidence of NCDs such as obesity. They recommended removing incentives to buy too much or buy unhealthy food was important. Things such as price promotions, the, um, the outlay, the laying out of the supermarkets as well as advertising. And they felt the responsibility sits with Scottish government to deliver this as well as supermarkets themselves hold responsibility and to some degree consumers as well. I would say that our table had um, different points of view coming into the, into the discussion. 
With regards to actions, I think everybody felt that regulation played a very important part of this discussion, but also voluntary measures to some degree. With regards to why would this be valuable, it would be very valuable valuable because it would help to reestablish the role of supermarkets and make sure that they're more focused on the environmental and the social justice aspects as well. Um, we know we've succeeded when uh, dietary guidelines also apply to businesses. That was some suggestion around the table, um, but it was also important that some people within the table thought that there was questions as to what this would practically look like. They also thought that we would know how what a measure of success would be with regards to uh, the measuring of, of incidences of diabetes and cancer um, and general metrics around the amount of fruit and vegetable that was sold, although it was important to note that just because fruit and vegetables were sold doesn't necessarily mean that they were consumed. Yeah. How could we promote collaboration? Uh, it was suggested that we create a safer space for retailers to share their data. Um, at the moment, they're quite fearful around things like competition law um, and, generally speaking, publishing data as a whole to make sure that, that more of this information was, was visible and transparent um, to allow for best practice sharing and, and joining up of standards as a whole. What could my organization do to support this? Uh, there was conversations around the university playing a role of, of research, making sure the research was quite broad-based and to ensure that it was no, not just narrowly focused purely on nutrition, um, but also looking at aspects such as behavior. Are you optimistic that in three years' time there will be the kind of shifts that you're writing about there? A lot of this is happening already. Yeah. Consultations underway, progress on legislation in these very areas. Thank you. I think a lot of some of the supermarkets and the producers and processors who supply them are seeing it as better business to yeah. be more public health aware, environmentally aware and, and socially just aware. So I think there is movement and we're beginning to see how much change can happen yeah. when they want to do things around packaging, for example, or when they want to do things or when they, they, they believe that the broader pressure is around tackling something. So I think there is, but we do have to open our, our minds. We do have to open our rooms and our spaces and our and our project consortiums um, to them and, and, and show a more a safer, more collaborative space where we aren't blaming, putting the blame and responsibility on them, though getting them to understand where what what their purpose and what their role is. Pete talked about this on the table, what their role is in delivering and nourishing mm. the, the, the local, regional, national and global population. How interesting. So this combination of governance consumer pressure, market mechanisms. It's kind of coming up as a sort of weaving process that is so important. And I want to keep this as part of our, our emerging theme. This is not one or other pathway, it's multi-pathways. Table four was coming to, a, it was a tough question, Helen. It was, yeah. Do you want to, okay, thank you very much. Heather, would you like to introduce the question? Uh, so we were looking at how Edinburgh could reduce its carbon footprint from food consumption. I'm Heather Tully and I am from Queen Margaret's University slash Scottish Government. So one theme that we kept coming back to during our discussions was that actually we really needed to understand where Edinburgh's carbon footprint originated across the food supply chain. And from that came our ultimate recommendation, which was to develop a city level carbon footprinting tool. And this will be a tool that um, both food businesses, but also um, public sector institutions, thinking there of councils, schools, government, hospitals, etc., would be required to use and to report on. And that reporting would need to be broken down so that people can understand in a meaningful way um, you know, where these businesses and uh, institutions' carbon footprint was arising. 
And we talked about the possibility of attaching tax implications to this carbon auditing tool. So you've got an incentive or you know, a, a stick or, or a carrot to help encourage businesses and institutions um, to make them positive shifts. Because we're talking about quite a, um, a system based on your know, quantifiable data, that gives us quite clear measures of success. We'd know we would have succeeded when organisations reduced their carbon footprints year on year, um, but also when they were really engaged in and um, the process, you know, engaged in the reporting, when it was a meaningful thing rather than just a tick box exercise. Uh, we talked about promoting collaboration in a range of different ways, having champions from across sectors. Also, potentially at a citizen's level, um, one idea was a citizen's assembly to, to be involved in that process. Um, we talked about how it might be a disproportionate burden on small businesses to engage in that, that audit and, and that reporting. And so they could potentially um, either be partnered up with larger businesses or have a sort of you know, a carbon cooperative, a, a sort of wider forum to help them make those changes. We also talked about the fact there are existing business associations across Edinburgh that, that could tap into this and help form some of the structure to underpin this. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, all of you. And let's come to table five. Very keen to know whether or not, uh, Madeline, you're going to be able to <coughs> capture this one. It was a tricky one. And if you'd like to just remind us what the question was and report back, that'd be great. Yep, so I'm Madeline. I work at the University of Edinburgh. And we were discussing how food sector workers in Edinburgh, Scotland and the UK can have decent work and afford an adequate standard of living. So we actually started off with a, a big discussion about what decent work meant and adequate standard of, of living meant. And a lot of the things that we talked about came back to feeling valued as a, as a sector and as a workforce. So things like being represented, having connections with decision makers, having stability of, of contracts, the ability to plan longer term if you're a business, having access to different forms of finances as a business as well and as an individual. We also touched on the... The different layers, so top-down versus bottom-up. So we focused on, on the bottom-up and the idea of empowering food sector workers and what might it take to do that. So one topic that came up quite a lot was education. So educating food sector workers themselves, either through, through workers' assemblies, through making it um, easier to set up cooperatives, giving people a sense of value and ownership over their work, also, education in schools, just about where food comes from, so that the future generations have a maybe have a better sense of, of valuing the sector. Possibly, one thing that could come from top down would be some kind of survey or data collection about work satisfaction. Um, we talked briefly on um, whether procurement processes could help some of these issues in terms of encouraging procurement from kind of small local businesses. We didn't talk as much about collaboration. One thing that came out was that in Belgium there's a, a kind of new model prize. So it's run by the equivalent of the National Farmers Union and it involves all the major supermarkets and it's in partnership with a major, major media company which kind of gives it quite a lot of traction. What is that called? Sorry, I misheard you. I'll, I'll write it down for you later. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good. So maybe learn from Belgium. Good, thank you. So this shows you that out of this kind of conversation, enormously useful suggestions that are potentially implementable and relevant for decision makers emerge. Why do they emerge? One, because you are all committed and engaged people. 
And that's why I want to really say to you that the secret of the dialogues is being ready to let go and accept that you have, in a room full of now 45 people, there is so much strength and capacity, and it's that that we want to let come out. This way of working at different levels simultaneously is such an important part of systems change, and I just want to encourage you to continue doing that, even though it's full of ambiguities, sometimes really disturbing contrasts, and uh, can be quite tiring and troublesome. But let's keep that top-down, bottom-up, or individual structural dyad in our minds. That is key. Lastly, we're here in university. What are universities doing? They're doing research to serve society. Many of you have talked about the importance of data, the development of metrics, the importance of definitions, the need for definitions that can be understood and accepted by others to be tested, and then the importance of chronicling what happens through change. This is an agenda for academe, but academe 2020 plus. And I'm so excited that we have several universities represented here, not just one or two. And I hope that in this process, this can lead to an engagement of universities in systems change for Scotland. And then that Scotland can be a real exemplar for not just the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but for Europe and for the world. I want to come back and I want to see this happening and I want to encourage you all to keep it going. Thank you all for doing this. We love you to organise your own dialogues. More and more people are doing it. We have something called Dialogues in a Box that we can offer you. And then you can feed in to our syntheses and help us make them right. And with that, we say thank you. Very good, yes, fascinating. Both as a professional working in this area and as Scott. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, to be honest, but I found it quite stimulating to get you know, all the various different opinions and actually quite impressed that out of, out of that quite concrete suggestions that you could imagine taking tangible form emerged. Meeting people from different sectors and um, getting more information about uh, this topic, the model is really very good and I hope to take it up in the future. Yet it was very, really well done. Thank you for downloading and listening to this podcast. If you would like to hold a food systems dialogue in your locality, you can find out more about doing that via the web link foodsystemsdialogues.org. You can also follow the updates of the Food Systems Dialogues on Twitter. The handle is at fooddialogues. If you would like to get in touch with myself, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Kirstine. Thank you and all the best.